NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful, sunny California. Thanks for tuning into the Water Zone this afternoon. I'm Rob Starr, along with Mr. Chris Davies, and uh, today is our act show, so we're going to have some great guests. Uh, Chris, how are you doing today? I'm splendid. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Appreciate you asking. It's a nice hot July afternoon. Oh yes, it is extremely. Uh, uh, it's hot, but it's also muggy. Muggy, muggy, and I worry about that because yeah. uh, last night, you know, I was in San Diego yesterday, and there were some uh, flash rain, rain uh, stuff going on, and uh, thunderstorms. Oh, there's thunderheads over the mountains right now. Look at yep. look to the north. And ominous going home. I don't know if you listen to the radio on the way up here, but I'm going to have traffic going home because of that fire. Yeah, that right. they got in '91. That's right. Well, anyway, we're uh, gonna we're gonna bring we go. we're gonna bring on uh, a couple a couple things. Uh, we're gonna bring on Miss Ingie Bisconer, who's gonna host the act part of the show and then uh, she'll introduce her guest so Ingi, welcome so dr glenda hummiston was appointed vice president of the uc agriculture and natural resources uh, in august uh, 3rd 2015 and uh, she was born in california and raised on a cattle ranch more than 25 years of experience uh, she was a member of the 4-h uh, she came to uh, uc anr with more than 25 years experience working on public policy development and program implementation supporting sustainability uh, she served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Tunisia, uh, Tunisia as executive director of a nonprofit organization advocating farmland preservation and value-added agricultural development, and several years as a consultant on environmental and agricultural issues throughout the West. Most impressively, well, aside from everything else she's done, she served with uh, President Clinton as Deputy Undersecretary for Natural Resources and Environment of USDA from 1998 to 2001. She managed the Sustainable Development Institute at the 2002 World Summit for Mexico City in 2009, I'm sorry, for Sustainable in South Africa, and the 2006 World Water Forum in Mexico City, Mexico City. In 2009, Humiston was appointed by President Obama to serve as the California State Director at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Rural Development. Humiston produced a widely acclaimed guidebook on access to capital and has led efforts to bring rural issues to the forefront of the state's economic summit and policymakers throughout California. So to our audience and, and, and to Ms. Humiston, we, uh, we appreciate uh, uh, your patience in, in us getting back to speed here with our equipment that's happening Hello. here at the studio. Anyway, Ms. Humiston earned her PhD from UC Berkeley in environmental science, policy and management in 2009 with research focused on U.S. Farm Bill policy. She has a master's Master's degree in international agricultural development from UC Davis and a bachelor's degree in animal science from Colorado State University. Uh, so, Glenda, are you still with us? So, Glenda, when you visited with Ingi on World Water Day last March, uh, you and her talked about a lot of things, but got cut short talking about something very important, and that was the Working uh, Landscape Action Team, which you chair for the California State Economic Summit. This idea is very important because how well we manage our land directly affects how we manage our water. It's such an important idea that it is a theme for next year's California Irrigation Institute Conference, which you have generously agreed to keynote, so we appreciate that. Uh, can you tell us a little about, uh, about that conversation you had with Ingi and so forth last March? Summit, which has happened each year since uh, its first one in 2012, uh, we have several action teams, one of which is about working landscapes. Uh, that particular action team has a couple very active work groups, one of which is looking at ecosystem services. Uh, it has developed a policy paper with some strong recommendations, and I'm really thrilled to uh, share that we've recently had meetings with some state legislators who are 
we're very interested in pursuing some of those policy recommendations. The other work group that's been quite active has been looking at uh, finding synergies between water, land use, and flood management, how, how we could really start managing all three of those resources. Familiar with. 
Uh, There's actually about 17 ecosystem services that working landscapes provide to the the public in general and and citizens individually. And those range from things like um, groundwater recharge, uh, you know, open land facilitates groundwater to recharge to keep our aquifers replenished. Uh, That green growing stuff produces oxygen. Um, Open farmland managed properly can provide flood protection. In addition to producing food and fiber, it also can provide wildlife habitat, wetlands, etc. And then some of the other uh, ecosystem services are things like open space. In fact, that's one people probably are most familiar with uh, because we've had some decades here in California of using conservation easements to help keep large swaths of land intact for farming as well as open space purposes. And there's others, but those are kind of the key ones most folks would recognize. Yeah, Glenda, it's Inge here, and I would love to hear more about the um, groundwater recharge, partly because I'm just on the heels of attending the BARD conference at your uh, UCANR facility in Davis, and it was um, a fabulous conference between um, researchers and leaders in California and Israel. And one of the things that was top of topic was this new idea of flood mar, which is um, managed aquifer <laughs> managed aquifer recharge using flood irrigation during you know the, the times in the winter when the when the rivers are running high and there's plenty of snow melt. Um, tell us a little bit about the efforts that you see and and your working lands program. Uh, are doing to enhance that capability. Yeah, that is a project that uh, has been underway for several years now, and there's some there's several really key players there. Um, our working lands uh, group that's been doing it under the leadership of Judy Corbett, who has just provided amazing leadership on this, uh, has really focused on pulling together the different parties, land use, water agencies, and, and the second year flood management agencies, to really look at what kind of policies we would need to facilitate enacting that more. Um, Prior to that, though, um, our UC Cooperative Extension folks, along with other researchers, have been working very closely with farmers throughout the state to really um, test what that might mean. As you might imagine, if you're a farmer and you've got some, some vines or some trees out there, the thought of flooding them for weeks at a time can be pretty frightening. And yet we know that when a lot of them are in their their dormant stage, it actually doesn't hurt them to be flooded. So we've been very carefully working with different varieties with farmers. And I got to really call out Don Cameron. He's, he's been a real leader in this, one of the first large farmers to step up. And also another NGO that we work closely with, uh, Sustainable Conservation. Uh, it's a statewide organization uh, under the leadership of Ashley Boren. All these people have really been coming at this from different angles, and I think that is really what's getting us to some success quickly, is all the different partners working together, and each of them bringing their strength to the table. The conference you were just at, where we're now looking at how Israel is, has been and is doing certain things, plus the lessons we've learned from California, um, as you said, I think it's just going to help move us further forward even faster. But we still got yeah. some work to do. You 
know, for one thing, uh, we've been doing some work on mapping which exact landscapes are the most viable to recharge quickly and effectively. But also, you know, just what kind of rules and regulations and policies will allow us to do it? Because, you know, since it's a somewhat new thing, uh, you know, some of the existing frameworks don't always work. And then also educating our farmers on the advantage of it. But I want to also say it's not just farmers. There's a lot of opportunities for groundwater recharge in urban areas as well. Yeah, and I was fascinated to see the maps. Uh, we saw some of those maps uh, just yesterday. Just put together, showing where it's best to do recharge. And as you, you know, even the layman might imagine, that coarse, sandy soil would be uh, a better soil or a better landscape to apply the water onto in order to get the water into uh, the groundwater aquifer where it can be um, used at a later date, as opposed to a heavier, siltier, more clayish soil which um, actually could cause damage to the crop on top of it. So uh, it's really Absolutely. cool that, that effort has been ongoing to help us uh, intelligently um, replenish our groundwater in winter, even on existing farmland. Well, and it's two things, really, because it's a combination of the soil that allows the recharge, but also you've got to have some groundwater basins in there able to receive and hold that water, and preferably hold it so that we can then tap into it and use it during drought years when it's needed. Yes, yes. You know, I was also going to uh, say in your, during your introduction um, how appreciative we are at the California Irrigation Institute that you've uh, generously agreed to keynote uh, our conference coming up in January of 2019. And uh, regular listeners to the Water Zone will, will know that um, we often have guests um, associated with the conference on this show, as well as Don Cameron, uh, a fellow that you just mentioned. And, uh, and actually, um, due to your work and my exposure to your work, that is the conference theme this year, working landscapes. How can we manage our water better by managing our land? So thank you for agreeing to keep that. We're very excited about having you come. Yeah, I'm real excited, too, and I, I think this uh, team we've got working on the groundwater recharge and water management in general, but also that team on ecosystem services is really crucial because one of the things they're looking at is how we might be able to monetize some of these ecosystem services so that we've got access to the funding we need to facilitate the actual work. You know, in some cases here, you need some infrastructure. You might need to change up, you know, how water conveyance is being handled. Um, you, you might need to actually go in and do some restoration work on certain habitats to improve both the habitat for waterfowl at the same time you're improving the groundwater recharge. And all of that costs money. Yes. Is that, is that kind of what you mean by uh, creating markets? Um, is that kind of a... Um uh, a way to uh, to to obtain funding to do the things that that we need with the working yeah. landscapes. You know, a perfect example is, is really when you look at our Sierra, um, the whole range, uh, the Sierra Nevadas. Um, those. Those mountains right now, that mountain range is is got a lot of forest, and right now a lot of that forest is an extremely unhealthy state. Um, you know, it's part of the. Re
reasons we've had a tree mortality task force this past couple of years. Over, I, I think the current number is over 160 million dead trees. And it's not just those dead trees. It's, it's undergrowth that uh, is too thick. It's invasive species, you know, foreign plants that have come in and crowded out our native plant species. But long story short, those unhealthy forests wreak havoc in several ways. Obviously, the fires we've been having, but the other thing is they really harm our water management system. They've changed up how snow melts, how snow stays, how water comes into the system. In fact, some of the research are uh, UC folks at, at Davis and Merced and Berkeley have recently done has estimated that if we could get those upper watershed forests to be in a healthier state, a, a more natural state, they could be producing 9 to 16% more water. And when you think about the fact that the Sierra and Cascade produce 60% of the water that um, our, our ag and urban areas use, um, that, that's a lot of water. Potentially. Yeah, yeah and that's not true. So the idea there, to, there's a lot of different ways to do something. I'm sorry. There's a lot of different ways to do something about that. Um, one way is to just simply go to the people who are receiving that water, and, and both urban and agriculture, and just have them pay a tiny bit more. You know, you might be talking for the average urban uh, resident, uh, an extra dollar a month on their water bill could provide the kind of funding to really do massive amounts of work in the upper watershed. Now, what exactly would you do up in that? Um... You would clear out invasive species, and you okay. would clear out areas where there's there's too much under uh, undercover. So, so really, if you if you consider the Sierra, the forest up there, in in more a hundred plus years ago, when they were in a more natural state um, before mankind stopped allowing fires to burn. The trees were further apart, they were larger, and there was a lot more open ground underneath them. And that, having that open ground and the trees being larger, taller, uh, more open, really changes how snow stays on the ground and, and how it actually starts melting in the spring. And it really can affect how much we can store and, and how much um, it recharges the groundwater. But since we have kind of mismanaged our forest by not allowing fires and allowing all that underbrush to to accumulate, is it practical, is it possible even to have... Absolutely. Oh, no, we've got some very successful um, forest restoration efforts up and down the state. I mean, we, we do quite a bit of it, but the last time I spoke to the um, U.S. Forest Service, because they've got an awful lot of land in the, in the Sierra and the Cascade Ranges, um, I, if, I, if I recall, what they told me is that for us to simply um, stay even or perhaps improve a little bit, we need to be doing treatment, natural restoration treatments, on about a half a million acres a year. And we currently, with federal and state funding, only have the dollars available to do about one-tenth of that. So we're losing ground every year. And we've really got to turn that around if we're going to start seeing some of the positive benefits. Okay, so just a little bit more on some people's water bill, and uh, we could get some of that work done, huh? 
Yeah, but that's only one example. I don't. I don't want to say that's the only one. You know, there's there's um, in much the same way that we have doing that we're doing cap and trade right now. In fact, you could you can consider that a bit of an ecosystem service too. The way we're managing that, we're trying to find ways to take carbon out of the air by manipulating markets. So those that are able to uh, either sequester carbon or reduce carbon quickly uh, actually get paid for that by those who can't do it as quickly. And although we eventually want everybody um, doing the right thing as far as reducing carbon uh, emissions, um, for some industries and some locations, they just can't do it overnight. And this allows us to start getting some forward momentum, but giving everybody a chance to move forward in a way that's both economically as well as technologically viable. Yeah. Is it is it possible that we'll be actually paying farmers someday to to sequester carbon into their lands that they they'll actually um, have a market for doing that for society? Yeah, there's already a great deal of exploration on that. And there there are some places that are exploring that already. Um, and doing it different ways. I mean, some of it is things like um, no-till farming, where you don't actually plow up the ground. You actually plant the next year's crop into a cover crop that's already there. Other things are um, planting certain crops that um, grow really rapidly. Um, you know, eucalyptus is a really awful example because it's a tree we don't necessarily love here in California. But it really grows fast and produces a lot of biomass. Um, certain types of switchgrass. Uh, another one people are looking at actually is hemp. Uh, hemp grows rapidly and it sucks a lot of carbon up as it does. And you can then turn around and use that in a variety of products. Um, rope and cloth and, and all kinds of things um, that, that, you know, provide some environmental benefits. So... Do you have uh, support from the governor's office on this working landscapes concept of of really helping us monetize what our natural? I mean, there's no way we could build machines to do it. Uh, so, do you have the funding and the support from our from from the government to do this? Well, yeah, you know, actually, I think you could argue the government's been on board with this for decades if you stop and consider something like the Williamson Act. Um, that's been policy in California for, I should probably know this, but I'm going to take a wild guess, at least four or five decades, yes. where um, the, the government subsidizes uh, local government to not charge as much property tax on working landscapes. So in other words, instead of taxing that property as if it was just sitting there to be developed into a housing development, which is what was occurring, um, now we've put protections on that, and because there's less property tax from that, and that of course affects local government, school districts, etc., we, we pay subvention funds to uh, you know make that less painful for local government. Um, programs like um, a great example up in Sonoma County, they tax themselves for their Sonoma County Ag Preservation and Open Space District to purchase conservation easements on working farms to keep them both working as a farm but also to provide open space for the communities and start harvesting those ecosystem services. 
And there's other examples of ways people have done that using different policy frameworks, uh, not only in California, but in other parts of the U.S. as well. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, what other examples can you provide? I love the ones you've already given, groundwater, carbon, uh, forest management, um, other great well, you know, let me go back to the Elevate uh, Rural California for a moment, because what we're trying to do there is really link together all the working landscapes work around ecosystem services and better water management, et cetera, but really tie it to both regional and statewide economic development efforts. Because um, then it's going to help more than just the environment or the actual farmers. It's going to be growing the economy for all of California citizens, both urban and rural. Uh, one yeah. item I'm particularly excited about right now is work we're doing closely. Um, our, my division at UC, the UC Ag and Natural Resources, we're partnering up with RCRC, the um, Rural Counties uh, Regional Representative, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting what that acronym actually stands for, but it's the rural counties around the state, 38 of them, to develop a biomass in a, in a massive way to actually get our hands on that biomass out of our forest as well as agriculture and even urban and get it into very high value uh, new technology ways of building materials and then complete that supply chain to large anchor institutions such as the state government, the University of California, and others to start doing a wood-first building policy. This is something that Europe and Canada has been doing for, for over a decade or more. Uh, just recently, Washington State passed legislation uh, uh, mandating this, and Oregon is actually doing it now. I'm talking about uh, very high-value uses of biomass, like cellulosic nanofibers and uh, CLT, cross-laminated timber, and other products that actually allow us to go in and build large buildings. Uh, we just broke ground uh, earlier this year in Portland, Oregon, on a, a skyscraper that's going to be 14 stories tall, built of wood. Um, wow. And the nice thing is, these buildings, are, they're beautiful because they're wood, but they're also more energy efficient, they're better in an earthquake, they, they meet just as good a fire standards, fire safety, and they sequester a lot of carbon. In fact, uh, a building like that one up there, the 14-story one, it'll be the equivalent of taking thousands of cars off the road every year. Wow, that's a, that's incredible. And I, I see, I, I did a little research on the uh, document that you sent me earlier that it may actually help uh, create jobs through the community college workforce uh, development yep. efforts. We're working closely with the community colleges on this for workforce development. The governor's office and the legislature uh, has, in fact, in the governor's recent budget, he put funding in for a, uh, a Wood Innovation Institute that uh, myself, uh, my counterpart at the CSU system, and the State Board of Forestry are going to be co-hosting and co-leading. In fact, we've already had meetings on that. There was some funding in the recent budget 
there was legislation to support that, SB 859. And we've had meetings where we're actually bringing together the the infrastructure people, the finance people, the um, local government and others, because we, we're really going to try to build the entire supply chain here in California, from the forest through manufacturing of these products in California, which will provide a lot of jobs, and then actually getting them into something like University of California. In fact, I, I got to give a shout out to my boss, uh, President Janet Napolitano. One of her big initiatives at UC is for the entire UC system to be carbon neutral by 2025. Um, as we move forward at UC, as well as others like the CSU system and other government entities, we have a lot of building to do going forward because we're just growing. We've got more students. As we build those dormitories and laboratories and classrooms, if we do it using wood, it's going to make a huge difference in this state for both the environment and the economy. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really good goal because I don't think people realize how big the University of California is in the state's economy and, you know, the footprint, really, of uh, all the all the buildings and facilities and the people. So if you can get this, if you can get the UC to get on the right page on these efforts, it's almost as big as probably the military or maybe even Disneyland. <laughs> oh, it's way bigger than Disneyland, I promise you. <laughs> and it might be as big as the military in this so, state, maybe bigger, who knows. But not, yes. again, not just UC. I mean, we're, we're a little ahead of the game thanks to uh, President Napolitano's leadership, but the CSU system, um, any of our public uh, entities, as well as private, we've actually got some private sector firms already uh, in California starting to do wood first. And, you know, I'm running out of time, so let me just quickly mention the other two big items in Elevate Rural California. Yeah, and broadband. one of those is broadband, broadband connectivity, which is crucial. And that actually gets back to water. Um, one of the ways a lot of our farmers are better managing their water is they have soil sensors in the ground all over the place. In some cases, one with every single tree that is providing a signal that feeds into a computer that then makes sure that tree or that vine or that crop doesn't get one drop more of water than it actually needs to grow. But the problem is if you've got a lot of farmers and a lot of that kind of uh, electronic uh, signal running around in fields in rural areas and you don't have adequate bandwidth, you really stifle the ability to make use of that kind of technology. And that's a problem we have all over California in rural California. Yeah, yeah. I mean, broadband helps with water management because we're all connected now and we do have high tech on the farms. Absolutely. And then, of course, our third big item is water infrastructure. Uh, and we're looking there at not just the big water infrastructure that, that people see in the newspaper all the time. You know, the, the debates over the tunnels or the, the sites of dam or that kind of thing. But there's a lot of small-scale local water infrastructure and changes to how watersheds themselves are managed that can make a huge difference. Um, so we're, we're doing a lot of work on that. And, and trying to identify how to help people move forward with that. 
you, you know, if I can put a real quick plug in here, um, yeah. I, I would really urge your listeners to attend the State Economic Summit. Uh, it's going to be held up in Sonoma County in Santa Rosa this year, um, and it's going to be Thursday and Friday, November 15th and 16th. Uh, it's a great event. One of the reasons I've been very active with it and love it is that the people that come there are focused on action. Um, it's not just a lot of policy wonks talking and, you know, different interest groups arguing. Everybody's there because they've, they want to get on board with finding some viable, sustainable, triple bottom line solutions. And it, it's great to work with people like that. Wow. Well, thank you. I uh, just noted those dates, and I'll put that on my calendar. Maybe I can even make it, and I hope some of our listeners can, too. And, uh, and also put a plug in for the California Irrigation Institute Conference coming up in February, February 4th and 5th, where um, uh, listeners, if you liked what you heard from Glenda today, you can hear more from her uh, at, at the Sacramento Conference. Well, Glenda, yep. thank you so much and, for joining and, us. And two evening. last things. If people yes. do want to know more about some of the working landscapes or Elevate Rural California, you can go to the California to, to the caeconomy.org website. And if you want to know more about some of the other work I mentioned with Cooperative Extension, our research, the, the recharge efforts, and more, uh, go to our www.ucanr.edu website, and you'll find all of our programs and projects uh, available there for you to look at. Yeah, it's a great website. I've been on it, and uh, the, our listening audience should easily be able to find uh, the topics that we've been discussing this evening. It's well organized, so uh, kudos to you and your staff for uh, making it so. Um, Thank you so much, Glenda, for taking another evening of your time with us at the Water Zone. We really appreciate it. Thank you for your leadership and all the good work that you and your staff are doing. Uh, again, they did a great job at the BARD uh, conference over the last week. Um, we look forward to hopefully having you come visit us again in the near future. My pleasure. I'm a big fan of your program. Thank you so much. Well, Rob, I guess we can hand it back over to you. We will. Kind of a, a, a weird thing. So, uh, Chris, are you there? Yes, it is. You know, we're working uh, hard to get through the technical issues, but uh, we'll we'll make it. We're going to go to the old reliable, at least today, old reliable uh, cell phone. Yep. To, <laughs> to do the uh, to do the rest of the call. So, what would we do if we didn't have cell phones? We'd be in deep pucky. Well, we would. We'd be telling jokes to each other for. Uh, uh, for a little while, like, or, or like limericks, the, like, like the one you just passed, like me. the one I gave you. <laughs> no, we can't do yes. those kind of jokes yeah. on the air. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this doesn't happen hardly ever. And uh, ah, we get a phone yep. call here. So, let me so here this. we go. Let me get her on speakerphone, and hopefully we're there. Are you with us, Chris? Yes. Ah, oh, Chris Austin is uh, on the line. Everybody, thankfully, thank goodness. Welcome today, Chris. Uh, you've you've been hearing uh, a lot of uh, digital problems we've had, but glad to hear your voice. <laughs> yeah, it's a little hard to hear you guys, but sorry, sorry about that. It's uh, it's been a difficult afternoon <laughs> when when things 
everything goes wrong, and the uh, we've got a great engineer who's working his uh, tail off, uh, but the other technicians for the studio are not here, and um, I can't run back and help them because I'm doing the show. Otherwise, I'd be in there yeah. fixing the electronics because I can do that. But and I'm a CC certified. I know. And my wife tells me, and my wife tells me I'm certified anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> well, well, and and you and I know what's that what what that's like. Right. <laughs> it's like, and I, I had a I had a phrase for that. You know, when I would be working on a session and everything that was technically wrong would would, would go wrong, and and I would just tell myself this session will come to an end yes. sometime. <laughs> yes. the worst, the wor- I don't know when, but it will come to an end. No, the, the, the worst thing, maybe you had this, just so people know, uh, Chris used to be, a, a, and she still is a fantastic studio engineer, recording studio engineer, and I used to be in that business. But what's interesting, uh, Chris, just a little quickie story, when I was doing stuff and you set up these called flying faders, and for the, our listeners who don't know what that is, you can record this band with 20-something or 36 channels of audio and you have to push up the little uh, buttons to make sure that the volumes are correct and everything's equal and so forth so you do that and then you set this computer that that handles that because in some parts of the song the guitar player wants to play a lead so you have to give them a little bit more volume or the singer wants to do a little bit different so you're you're moving all these little what we call faders up and down so so i had programmed this thing and and i think it was like 30 36 channels of audio so it's quite complicated to set it all up and then we went to do one more add to it. Well, it didn't take. The programming didn't take. And everything had to be, it, it, was, it was terrible. It was a terrible session. Like you said, it had to end. And, you know, the, the machine didn't, the, the failure stopped working. The computer was bad. And uh, I don't like those things anymore. So. <laughs> I know. And you know what? Flying faders was like so cool. But now I, I was like at a conference and I was in the back talking to the audio guys because you know they're my peeps right? right and and he was showing me they hit a button now and they all and and they all move it's like it, it's like no big deal to them but boy back back in the day weren't we just, oh. we drooled for flying faders Abs- absolutely <laughs> absolutely so let's let's go as a proper introduction we have chris maven who is the uh the matron and owner of uh, maven's notebook which i hope everybody uh uh gets a copy every single day and subscribes to and you can by going to mavensnotebook.com and uh, i'm going to turn it over to chris here for a second and uh, i'm per i'm perplexed or fuddled or it's been a hard it's been a hard day with this show trying to try to get all the things through <laughs> and chris and i are laughing because we literally stack two cell phones on top of each other so we can get the last two people talking and it's just funky. it was it's like using uh, really yeah, like pa- paper. I remember it well. Paper cups and alligator those. clips. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yes, we had no duct tape, right? So we're there. We're there, sort of cantilevering the microphone off of the bo- off the mic boom to try and get it to stay in the right place, but pick up bo- both speakers on the on the cell phones. It and, was a challenge. And, and yours is being done that way as well. <laughs> so. What's happening in the uh, in the water world this week, Chris? Up in uh, San Joaquin Valley, Sacramento area. What's the big news? Well, oh boy, it, uh, a lot of things moving on the tunnels in the last day or so. Uh, they released the environmental, the, the last round of the environmental report for public comment, which I think it's you have till 
Oh, September in September to comment -September, on that, which right. is only on the changes. They've refined the project some in the engineering world. They call that optimization, uh, and and which is basically reducing impacts. And so it's but it's not a major change to the project. And they filed for what's called a consistency determination uh, from the Delta Stewardship Council, who has a uh, who manages the long-range plans for the Delta. Um, and at the same time, uh, it's kind of heating up in Washington, actually, quite a bit. You know, there's some uh, uh, riders attached to this appropriations bill that just passed the House. And one of those would... Um, would remove the California water fix project or the Delta tunnels, uh, there would be no judicial review, meaning no lawsuits would be entertained. They're just going to do it. And then uh, Congressman Valadeo added on something to, to the similar to extend it to all California water projects. And then another congressman, I believe it was Denham, uh, tossed in an amendment to uh, invalidate the state water boards, uh, they're they're trying to update the the plan for the delta to get more flows, fresh flows into the delta for uh, native species and such. And so, Denim has inserted this this uh, rider in the appropriations to uh, defund the federal portion, I believe of. What what uh, funds the water board's operation? They get funds from the feds to enact the Clean Water Act. So it was sort of he's trying to pull the rug out from under the state water board. And this bill did pass the House today, but it's expected to uh, be quite a fight in the Senate. Uh, with both Senators Feinstein and Harris uh, are opposed to these amendments. And uh, Secretary Laird came out on behalf of the Brown administration and said they are against these riders as well. So the, the fight heats up for the Senate. <laughs> Uh, it's going to be a lot of that going on for the next two years <laughs> or four years oh, more. <laughs> yeah, well, it's actually sit, you know sitting on the edge of her seat because these are riders uh, that if they if they go through could have quite an impact on a lot of things. Although it will also mean a lot of lawsuits because I do think there's a there's a issue with the federal government er interfering in states' rights and the states' rights to control water and the quality of water in our rivers. That is a state's right, not a federal right. So I would imagine that there will be lawyers queuing up uh, to take that one on. Always be lawyers. So do you think there's going to be an announcement of uh, Trump collusion about this as well? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. It's crazy. No, the it's state. Crazy. The, I, I believe it's the state's rights to to decide what they need yeah. to do. I don't know why there would be. Oh, oh wait. I mean, wouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I truly, I, I, Chris, Chris, and I agree. It's it's a state issue, and it should stay that way. Yeah, absolutely. What else is uh, big? We've only got a couple of minutes left because of the kerfuffle we had earlier, Chris. So, uh, uh, anything else you want to put on the uh, agenda? Um, well, let's see. They, uh, the Supreme Court uh, took the proposition to split California off into three. Took that off the ballot. Uh, there's just uh, too many fed, 
too many questions um, as to whether the voters can really choose to do that. And if they were to split into three states, that would have to be uh, approved by Congress and the Senate. And and I don't think the federal government and all those other people would like to see California's clout multiplied by uh, three in the Senate. No, uh, we, so. we, well, that was really original. Northern California, California, and Southern California. I mean, they couldn't come up with better names than that. <laughs> No, I, I think at this stage of the game, we're all kind of stuck with each other. Yes, you know? it should be. It I should be it, that way. If they split, if they split anything, whether in half or in thirds, we would lose so much money, and it would be it would be terrible. Oh, and the lawyers would make tons of money. But yeah, it, we'd be we'd be working the kinks out for years, decades, centuries. Yep. <laughs> Well, Chris, I'm sorry to cut you, but uh, we're up against the NBC News Hour, and, and again, we apologize to you, uh, Ms. Glenda Humiston, and Ingi, and everybody, all of our listeners. We we didn't expect it to happen that uh, all the equipment had a, a big fooey, and uh, we'll try to make it up to everybody. We'll uh, hey, uh, if you want to write to our website, it's waterzone at toro.com, and uh, give us your name and a contact number, and uh, we'll make it up to you somehow. We'll try to see if we can give you something. Thanks for sticking with us, guys. Thanks a lot. And remember, everybody, have a good week. And the most important thing you got to do is think think blue. blue. Good night, everybody. Good night.